Hello, hello. You are listening to A Pastor in His Newspaper with Dr. Castro, a podcast helping you read the news with the Bible in your hand. I am Dr. Castro. It's great to be with you. And we are on the last day of May and summer is upon us. My kids are out of school. Uh, The pool is open. And um, so it's, it's kind of a fun time of year and I enjoyed the Memorial Day weekend. I hope you did as well. I didn't watch Save it Private, Saving Private Ryan. That was probably a mistake, but uh, I always try to catch one of those movies. Like Save It Private Ryan is probably, uh, is probably one of my, it's probably my favorite war movie. Uh, anyone want to argue for a better one? I just, I think it's the best one. Or you just watch Band of Brothers, which is, is it just an extended version of Saving Private Ryan. But, um, but uh, yeah, so hope you enjoyed your week, your Memorial Day weekend and opening your pool if you have one or having friends and family over for barbecues. Um, and I uh, hope you have wonderful summer plans uh, planned. Uh, we are going to go to the beach in July, so it'll be super hot, but um, it'll be a lot of fun. It's always nice to be able to get out of town and go down to Florida and kind of just smell that ocean air. So, but we're going to talk about, you know, something that did happen uh, in the month of May, but one of my favorite uh, writers and pastors and theologians, uh, Tim Keller, uh, passed away, and uh, very, very sad. Um, I know that some who were very much affected when J.I. Packer passed away, similarly, similarly for me, um, I never met him. I did hear him preach at a conference uh, a few years ago in Indianapolis, and um, was very much impacted by it, but really have just have been uh, served by um, Tim Keller through his books. And I don't think there's a book that I read that Tim Keller wrote that I hated. Uh, I just liked everything that he wrote. I just like his his thoughts and uh, his ministry style has always been one that I've wanted to, to follow and, and emulate. So today's episode is kind of a, an episode to honor Tim Keller. And I was actually in the process of reading his last book, Forgive, when he passed away. And um, if you're listening to this and you go to Central Church, we do have copies of, of Forgive by Tim Keller in the library. I want to just encourage you to buy a copy of that. Um, just stop by, buy a copy of that in our, in our bookstore in the crosswalk. Uh, maybe do a Bible study with a friend, uh, through this book. And really the, today I'm just going to, in some ways, just kind of highlight this book and look at a few things that I thought were impactful as I, as I read it, things that I underlined. We've never really done this on, on a pastor in his newspaper, kind of look at a book. Um, I did this at a, at a former podcast that I did with a friend, and it was, we did it once. I think we had an episode where we highlighted a book, and we just kind of discussed it. It was one of our longer episodes, but it's probably one of my, my more, it's probably one of the, the, the more fun episode to do was to um, just look through a book together with a friend. So um, if you don't go to Central Church, um, you know, go to, you know, Amazon or wherever you buy your books and order this book and read it. Um, I think you will, will be well served. So um, today is just really kind of a, a push f- for you to read this book. And if you have never read Tim Keller, which is interesting, there's a lot of people who haven't read Tim Keller before and aren't really familiar with his written work. Um, they Obviously, maybe they're familiar that he was a pastor in New York and uh, Redeemer City um, Presbyterian Church, but um, um, maybe they heard it at a conference or heard him uh, heard, heard his sermon on a podcast. Maybe aren't familiar with his books, but he is such a great writer, 
and I will continue to read his books, um, um, you know, into my future ministry life. Um, and so I, I want to just read, before I get into the, the book, Forgive, I want to read um, just some quotes uh, from Tim Keller. Um, these have been kind of going around. Um, he, I mean, he's written so much, and so there's a lot of great quote, quotes by him. Um, but one that I actually posted on Facebook the, I think the day after he passed away. But the gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. Another quote, he says, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept that all, all that he said. If he didn't, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching, but rather he rose from the dead. I think that's such a great quote because it does you know, simplify even apologetics. Um, I'm teaching an apologetics class this summer. And really, it does hinge on the resurrection of Christ. If Christ rose from the dead, therefore, he is God. Therefore, uh, God has accepted his offering on the cross for your justification, for your salvation of your sins. And all the other miracles uh, kind of fall in line. And all of his teaching are, awfully, are, are completely truthful and without any, um, any um, falsehood whatsoever. Uh, another quote by Tim, Car- uh, Tim Keller, contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for the things they can't accept, but Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us looking for things God can't accept. Um, another quote here, Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. Our best defense in the fight against his lies is not the production of incarnations, but the rehearsal of truth. Um, I think that's a really helpful way to think about um, spiritual, you know, um, um, spiritual warfare. Um, it's a help because when people talk about spiritual warfare, they get into kind of these, just to speak the word, say the word Jesus, and it will go away. So kind of incon- uh, incantations, um, these kind of scripted prayers, um, but really the the defense against Satan is the lies that we tend to believe about God, about ourselves, or about the world. Um, and so um, it's a great um, understanding about spiritual warfare. Um, only if, you, if your God can, uh, can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. Uh, Keller also says, The glory of God is available to you in the church. In a way, it's not available to you anywhere else. There's no more important means of discipleship than deep involvement in the life of the church. Oh, I love that. I love that That deep understanding about the importance of the church. Um, here's another one. To be loved but not known is superficial. To be known but not loved is our, is our nightmare. Only Jesus knows us to the bottom and loves us to the sky. <coughs> the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Oh, it's so, so to, on the point. You know, we struggle with prayer, but children do not struggle asking their parents for things. 
you know, as a parent, I get annoyed when my, my kids want this and they want that, right? They want that glass of water when I've already put them to bed. But, you know, they, children, they have this understanding of access. They have access to their parents. They have no fear of asking their parents for a glass of water at 3 a.m. in the morning. Why don't we have that same confidence before our God? We have that access to Christ. Tolerance is about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. I think that is so significant. You know, we, we and, and we live in this day and age where there is a lot of division and a lot of disagreements and there's a lot of uh, identity politics, which is, you know, sometimes when we get into the LGBTQ issues, these are big issues that the gospel and the Bible speaks clearly against. Um, and, you know, it's not about a accepting what they believe. It's about that our gospel, that our truth, uh, our truth in Christ, our, our belief in Christ, how it affects how we treat people that we disagree with them. Um, another one here. Traditional religion says, I give God a good moral record, so he has to bless me. The gospel says, God gives me a good moral record through Christ, so I want to bless him. Religion says, if I obey, then God will love and accept me. The gospel says, God loves and accepts me, therefore I want to obey. Oh, it's right on. I'm going to read one more. Sex apart from marriage becomes a product we consume. If we find someone attractive enough in quality and low enough in price, if the quality goes down or the cost goes up, we can walk away because there's no covenant. But if sex comes only with the radical, self-giving, and whole life commitment of marriage that takes sex off the market, as it were, and makes it priceless. I think it's one of the issues that the church doesn't talk enough about sex, and therefore the culture is talking so much about it, that they're filling this vacuum. And so I think helping people, especially high school kids, college-age kids, to understand the biblical understanding of sex, um, the, the definition, which, I mean, God, God created sex, it's for His glory, it's for our benefit, for our... Um, uh, for our pleasure, and it's a gift from God, uh, done according to God's standards and, and definition. But actually, we we build uh, understanding the Bible presents sex as a, a, a very high. I mean, it gives it more meaning. And the culture actually is emptying sex as just simply something you do, just like eating or drinking. There's more things I could read about Keller. He's he's written so many things. Um, uh, there's an article uh, floating around about there are 50 quotes from Tim Keller. I'm actually reading from that article, so you can read more about this. But let me read one more. If it's the last one on the list, if you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for His mercy. Uh, it's so good. Um, I think you know, even just reminded that people. No, oh, I'm just I'm, I've sinned too much. I've I'm, I've done too too many things. I, God could never accept me. Um, your sin is no match for his grace. Um, and Paul states that in First Timothy chapter 1. He's the worst of sinners, right? Um, but God's grace is far greater than our sins. And he's not ashamed, as we see about in Hebrews chapter 2. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. And even though we are broken and sinful and
So now I want to look at the book, Forgive. This is his last book that he wrote. Um, again, you can pick this book up. If, you're, if you go to Central Church, you can pick this up in the crosswalk. I want to encourage you to do that. And this is very much a promotion of that book. And we, as pastors at Central, we really want to uh, push you to read good books, books that we think were encouraging us, we think will be encouraging you. And in, in, the, in the topic of forgiveness, I mean, this is a very biblical term, forgiveness. You know, God's forgives you of your sins, right? We are forgiven in Christ. So we, the term, my sins are forgiven. Um, but yet, in the, even in our social interaction, will you forgive me? I've committed a wrong against you. Will you forgive me? We, and we use this terms, but this is, the, this is the first book I've ever written, I've read that dealt with kind of the definition of forgiveness, the history of forgiveness. Um, looking at it from a contemporary or from a current cultural standpoint, which actually is, is, is very interesting of talking about how forgiveness has been affected in the kind of the Me Too movement. And so um, Keller goes through all these different these issues and, and um, even talking with couples about situations in marriage count, uh, counseling, how this book has been helpful in, in really helping them think through forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a difference between forgiveness and then the reconciliation, the 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 um, resolving of the issue completely. That's where we get into kind of the the further steps towards you know reconciliation. We see you know Jesus talking about in Matthew eighteen um, the importance of of the the mending of a relationship and forgiveness um, is the start of that that path of reconciliation. And we're talking about the dimensions of forgiveness. He, he, he talks about that. And, um, but even the history of forgiveness is, is very interesting, how forgiveness really isn't a thing in, in history up until Christianity, which is very interesting. Um, so um, let's just kind of uh, dive into this book. And, and one of the things that he, he does with this, with this book and on this topic of forgiveness is really kind of center everything around a major passage of scripture about forgiveness. And that passage is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And I'm not going to read this whole story, but uh, it's the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you're unfamiliar with this parable, um, Jesus gives this parable um, because the disciples um, had, had asked Jesus, how often uh, should I forgive my brother? And the, and, and Jesus then says 77 times. So this kind of re- repetition of forgiveness, um, which really is kind of a, a figurative number to speak of, like you should always forgive. You should always pursue forgiving uh, a brother who sinned against you and, and pursuing reconciliation, which he actually uh, talks about in this chapter. So he tells this parable of, of, a, of a kingdom uh, and there was a king in this kingdom, and there was a servant of this king who had a massive debt. Now, the debt is 10,000 talents, and one talent represented like a year wages. So 10,000 talents is a number, it's, it's 10,000 years of wages. Um, that's how um, much money that is. And so it's just, it's a number that this servant could never pay back, right? Not even 
it would take lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime to pay back this this king, this debt. Um, and so he asked the king to have patience with him. And out of pity, the king releases him and forgives him of the debt. <coughs> and so um, the story continues that this servant had a fellow servant, right? They worked together. He owed the the servant who just been forgiven by the king a hundred denarii, which is a hundred days of work. So we're talking about less than half a year of wages. Let's just go back here, the comparison. The one servant had 10,000 talents, which is 10,000 years of wages. This servant, this fellow servant of the one who owed this debt to the king and the king forgave him, we're talking about 100 days of wages. Really less than a, a, less than a year, um, less than half a year of wages. It says the, the, the servant who was forgiven by the king began to choke his fellow servant. He says, pay what you owe. And the, and the same plead, have patient with me, I will pay you. This is the same plead that the, 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 the other servant had towards the king. Now a, a fellow servant is saying the same thing to this servant who was forgiven by the king. Have patient with me and I will pay you. And the servant who was forgiven by the king refused, went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. So he had received this, this unbelievable amount of grace, an unbelievable amount of mercy, an unbelievable amount of forgiveness. He was, there's forgiveness that's, that's been had. He was released, forgiven of the debt. And then his fellow servant, who had far, so far, it's not even worth comparing the two, he refused to forgive refused to reconcile and threw him into prison. Well, if you don't know the rest of the story, the king finds out about this and then um, he's angry with him, delivers that servant to the jailer until he pays all his debt. And Jesus kind of ends the parable and says, so as so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And Keller actually helps define forgiveness better than I think it's it's usually um, um, understood. It, he's not saying you will be forgiven by God if you forgive, as if it's a work based righteousness, right? If if you forgive others, then God will forgive you. That's it would be a contradiction in the rest of Scripture and an understanding of the gospel that we are forgiven in spite of our stubborn, prideful hearts. And then God changes our heart to then forgive. And actually, I think that is the important part to this. When we are forgiven by the Father, when we understand the forgiveness that comes from God, we will then forgive our brothers. Because, And this is actually how Keller defines forgiveness and understands the dimensions of forgiveness, is that to understand forgiveness, you have to understand forgiveness that comes from God and the, the amount of um, debt that we are towards God. I mean, the 10,000 talents is proper. It's a proper definition of our debt to God. We are so in debt to God because of our sin. It should give us a humble understanding of our unworthiness of God's love and God's grace and God's acceptance and adoption and salvation. He saves us 
that sin then should affect us and change our hearts to then forgive others. And, um, and so that's, that's the biblical understanding of, of forgiveness. And, um, I want to just kind of going back to kind of the, what is forgiveness and kind of talk a little bit more about, um, again, when you talk about forgiveness, we don't really have a good definition of it. Um, but even using this, just using this passage, um, we see God as, you know, as representing the, the king. <coughs> he took pity on him, forgave the debt, and then released him. So it starts with truth-telling. I mean, pleading, like, I have a debt to you. So it's, to understand forgiveness, you have to identify that there is a debt, that there is a conflict, and one person has been... Um, um, been affected they're the victim right and then there's a perpetrator there's an injustice that has happened and so the the perpetrator has to be truthful and admit and repent of their sin of their of their action and then we see that the king or god took pity on him right he recognizes that this that this individual has he has wronged him, um, and so understanding the perpetrator's vulnerability, um, he sees that this perpetrator is not a villain, but is a human being with his own fears and his own griefs. And so then, so he understands um, that um, this is a person, and. And show he shows pity. Like we see that, that desire to show compassion, um, and so the king shows compassion on the servant, and then cancels the debt. That's an important part of this of this step process. Is is in truth? There's a there's a there's a um, um, the truth telling from the perpetrator to the victim. Uh, the the victim takes pity on. Um, the perpetrator recognizes that this is a, a human being that has fear and grief and sadness and remorse. Um, therefore, he's, he is moved to cancel the debt, to forgive the debt, to absorb the loss. So he recognizes he's not going to receive what is owed him, that he is canceling it out. And then the king lets him go. So there's, a, there's a reconciliation. There's a restoration. No longer will the king call this servant to come back and pay the debt because the debt has been canceled. It won't be brought up later. It's been absolved. And so, um, and so those are the kind of the four steps of forgiveness, uh, repentance, um, there's compassion that the victim has on the perpetrator. There's a canceling out of the debt and then a reconciliation of that, of that relationship. Now, when we think about these things, they don't all come in one big lump. and may, It may take time for these different steps to happen in the process. But for forgiveness to completely take place, 
uh, we see these four steps. Repentance, compassion, forgiveness, absolving the debt, and then reconciliation. That third and fourth step may take a lot of time um, to get to the reconciliation um, part. Uh, but you, and it's important. There's a willing. There's a willingness to repent, and there's a willingness to show compassion. Have to be there for forgiveness to take place. And so, when we think about again going back to uh, understanding the dimensions of Christian forgiveness, until Keller gets into this and his um, kind of what is forgiveness section of his book, that to understand forgiveness between one another, for us to forgive, say our 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 spouse or to forgive a, a sibling or to forgive a, someone, a coworker or a friend, a neighbor, someone like that. We have to understand that there's divine forgiveness offered, but again, it's the same steps, right? To be forgiven by God, repentance, God's compassion on sinners, God canceling his, uh, the debt through his son, Jesus Christ and his, and his death on the cross. And then the acceptance, the reconciliation that comes with that. Um, so for there to be a horizontal forgiveness between one another, we have to understand forgiveness with God. Um, and I think that's why when we get into understanding kind of like the fading of forgiveness, the world is, is, has a conflict with forgiveness because they do not have a relationship with God. And so they don't understand repentance, compassion, forgiveness, and then reconciliation. And we'll get into some of the some of the other definitions of forgiveness that the, that the world's kind of offering. Um, so quickly, just to kind of review or, or kind of say this one more time, to understand forgiveness, you have to understand forgiveness that comes through God, the vertical forgiveness, to then be able to direct that forgiveness that you receive from God to one another. Because again, going back to the, the parable, our debt to God is far greater than the debt between one another. 10,000 talents, 100 denarii, right? We're talking 10,000 uh, years of work, a um, few months, right? There's a massive difference. It's not even worth comparing the two. And so if we struggle to forgive one another who have far less debt to one another in comparison to our debt to God, if we don't understand the, the overwhelming love and forgiveness that God has given to us, we will never be able to forgive one another. And, you know, I've seen this, especially with marriage counseling, that wives and husbands, if they, they struggle to forgive one another, because there's someone involved that I think is not, either they are a very immature believer or they're not a believer at all, because they haven't, their definition of forgiveness is not biblical. Um, and we're going to get into some of those definitions that the world kind of throws around that are just completely wrong. And because forgiveness is rooted in the Bible, the world doesn't have some origin for forgiveness that's kind of separate from the Bible. Forgiveness, as we'll talk about in the history, actually comes from Christianity. That's where forgiveness even becomes a part of our just normal daily understanding. Um, and so you have to have an understanding of God's forgiveness on sinners to be able to have uh, be able to forgive one another horizontally. And so looking at some of the fadings of forgiveness, he talks, and this is such a great chapter talking about where forgiveness is in kind of the, in our day and age. And, and it really, 
the Me Too movement, uh, Harry Weinstein, the kind of the history of sexual abuse that really popped up in 2017. I think, and, and I think also another layer to this is um, uh, racial injustice. Um, and I think what the language hasn't been helpful because again, forgiveness has watched its roots or in the gospel over centuries of, in some ways, being cheapened and cheapened and cheapened and cheapened, there's, you know, there's just statements that I think have been made that have actually caused the fading of forgiveness. Things like forgive but not forget. Well, as I go back to the story of the parable of the unforgiving servant, the king released him. Meaning that he will never be called again to that room and that debt be brought up again. There's a reconciliation. There's been absolving of the debt, of the sin, of the, of, the, of the issue, of the crime. You can't say forgive and then, not for, and then forget or not forget. Like, that's – and I think what people are saying is, like, hey, let's just – forgive let's move on let's brush it under the rug and and that brushing under the rug also misunderstands the reconciliation portion of forgiveness that keller really gets into and and i think that cheapens it because the reconciliation again cry when god doesn't just forgive you of your sins he sent his son jesus to die for it there is a blood sacrifice for that grace, for that forgiveness. It does not come cheaply. And, and so that reconciliation came at a price. And when you say forgive and just brush it under the rug, you're cheapening it, and therefore people are rejecting the concept of forgiveness as if it's allowing uh, perpetrators of injustice to kind of go away without any accountability whatsoever. And so with the, the Me Too movement, uh, racial injustice, there's, a, there's been a, a kind of way I'm not going to forgive because forgive means forgive and forget. And forgiveness means I'm just going to say forgiveness and we're just going to brush the issue under the rug and there's no accountability. Because um, when we talk about Christian forgiveness, we're talking about forgiveness and then a reconciliation. Um, so when reconciliation happens, yes, then you move on. That crime has been absolved. There's been a peace and a unity that's been accomplished, and therefore it is forgotten. It is not, it's not brought up against you. But when we say forgive but then brush under the rug, reconciliation hasn't happened, and so the crime still remains un, unaccountable to, or un, it, hasn't, it hasn't been dealt with. Completely, and so um, we see, kind of in our day and age, um, you know, articles in the New York Times around that in 2017 by Danielle Berlin. She said, "Should we forgive the men who assaulted us? Should we forgive them? Right? Should we forgive them? Um, does forgiving mean are we actually giving them a pass? Um, you know, same with." Um, you know, and people think people have struggled because there's even with the, kind of the Harry Weinstein, there's a, a quote from Samuel Hayek as well about, you know, should I? Is it right 
to forgive. I, I, I want to think I have the, the heart to forgive people, but am I actually giving these perpetrators a pass? Am I actually leaving them, by forgiving them, am I actually maybe harming or being a part of harming someone else because this person hasn't been held accountable to their action? Um, and so three different ways that kind of the world has... It's a modeled forgiveness. I'm going to read all three of these. And Keller, again, this is from Keller's book, um, Cheap Grace. So when we think about kind of this cheap grace, this therapeutic culture, it really is kind of the, the root system of this kind of forgive and forget, just forgive and brush it under the rug. It comes from a mindset, which is, you know, live your own truth, um, look for your own truth, um, thoughts like what is one good choice that everyone can make to improve the world around them question everything don't let anyone make you feel guilty for the decisions you've made reject guilt, guilt producing standards um, be your authentic self uh, liberated from social norms liberated from any, any type of ethics, ethics uh, that are outside your own hearts and desires uh, if it feels good, do it. Well, that is really the root system of the sexual assault, the sexual assault kind of culture that we're Me Too movement is rejecting. So to forgive, with that understanding, is cheap. It's just kind of brushing things under the rug. Uh, the second one is little grace. Uh, basically, the perpetrators have to merit forgiveness. That means they have to earn it. Um, they have to earn forgiveness. Um, the victim will forgive them if the wrongdoer earns it uh, through kind of um, continual repentance and remorse and continual counsel and discussions. And, um, and it really is up to the victim to give over that forgiveness whenever they feel like it um and so that's it's kind of the kind of having to earn um that forgiveness and it really kind of goes even with the cancel culture it's like how how can people be uncanceled how can they how can they be um absolved of their crime is there it's really up to the victims and the masses to say, okay, now you've been forgiven. Now we can move on. But I can in some ways bring up that offense whenever I want, because you have to continue earn it. Um, so there really isn't a future for that person. That sin is always, that crime is always, that wrongdoing is always kind of there. And that person has to continually kind of, confess and confess and confess and confess and confess. And it really becomes their identity is they're the perpetrator and they're the victim and that's the continual identity. So there's no reconciliation that is that is happening. Um, the other is 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 a little more you know, there is no grace. The no forgiveness model in which forgiveness is abandoned completely in favor of the pursuit of justice for the victim. And I think that's really where we are today and that there really isn't any um, any forgiveness because forgiveness 
basically is is you're putting all the pressure on the victim to not only deal with the wrongdoing, but then kind of continuing with that. Um, well, actually, you're making the victim um, have to have the, they experience the wrongdoing, and then they have to experience the basically taking upon the debt of that, which is what forgiveness is. You are absorbing that wrongdoing and then forgetting it and moving on or reconciling with the person, and that's the future goal of forgiveness. Um, and so that is kind of the the growing, uh, it's always like a value to be more unforgiving. Um, and we see that even with, you know, social media, which is um, how can we in some ways embarrass and, and humiliate the wrongdoer um, and... Um, and shame them um, without really any 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 goal of ever forgiving or reconciling with that person. Um, so again, the, the perpetrator takes on that identity uh, that they're always a perpetrator, and they're no lo- they're never they're going to be absolved of that. Um, and so, really, the the, under, the forgiveness is is. Is fading because it's seen as more of a, a value in our day and age to to for justice. Justice is a big is the big value of our day. Um, those who are wrongdoers are always going to be a wrongdoer. Um, they shouldn't be forgiven because forgiveness is absolving them of their crime. They should be held accountable, and they should in some ways be stuck in that role. Um, and there is a, you know, one of the major values of our culture is to be the victim. You know, the more you can identify with victimhood, you're not identified with being a perpetrator. Um, and so you get to cry out justice for the crimes done against me. And I'm, I am not in the role of perpetrator, Right. Because if you're in a role of the perpetrator, there is no course for forgiveness. There's no course of getting out of that identity. You're always going to be stuck in that identity. So if you can bracket yourself as a victim, then that's a better place to be, actually. Um, so when we, when we think about the history of forgiveness, um, and interesting enough is um, Keller talks about this and everybody thought a history of forgiveness that seems like an odd chapter to have but I thought it was a very helpful chapter um, in understanding where forgiveness comes from and really the concept of forgiveness and again going back to the understanding of what forgiveness is it is understanding that we are forgiven by God of our sin and our debt to him and that leads us to then to emulate that same heart of forgiveness for others. Um, and again, one of the things that we have to get as we speak to the culture about this understanding of forgiveness, we're not ignoring the crime. When we think about Me Too movement and sexual assault, the Christian forgiveness is not ignoring the injustice. What we're saying to the perpetrator is you have committed a sin not just against the woman, but against God. And therefore, primarily, initially, you need to understand that God offers forgiveness for your sin. He offers grace for your sin through, his, through the blood of his son, Jesus. 
But you have to you have to admit that you have to be truthful that you did commit a sin, that you are a sinner, you are a lawbreaker, you deserve judgment, and you need to pursue reconciliation that is through Christ, be reconciled to God. So when you're reconciled to God, you recognize that you have sinned against your fellow man, and you need to repent to that person. That person may not have compassion on you. They may not. They may want to put you in jail. They may want you to, they may want to get their pound of flesh. Um, but you are absolved of the sin in relation to God. Now, it's up to the, to the victim, if they are a Christian, and a perpetrator is asking for forgiveness... Recognize that you have, your debt to God is far greater than actually the the man's debt to you. And if you knew, if you experience God's forgiveness for your sins, then you can show compassion. Um, you can show pity. You can show forgiveness, but that doesn't mean that you're brushing it under the rug. Because the process from of reconciliation with the person um, is is where the true gospel can come out, right? That even though they sinned so grievously, grievously against you, I mean, sexual assault is is horrible. It's wicked. It's extremely wicked to treat someone like an object and you're just going to take for your own pleasure is wrong and against God's word in every way. But when the woman who has been who's received the grace that has come from God, when she can show, and and again, if it if they broke the law, there should be there should be a judgment according to that. You know, there should be things set up in our society to judge when those things do happen. But uh, you can still show forgiveness to that person. And, 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 the, and the hope is, is that that reconciliation could potentially come through that. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's countercultural. Forgiveness is countercultural. Um, but one of, the, one of the positive things that comes out of it is that the victim and the perpetrator, who have both received, hopefully, God's forgiveness, can actually reconcile as brothers and sisters, and then internally... In heaven, they will be worshiping God eternally, and there will be no sexual assault or anything against one another for eternity. Um, and that is the, the the hope that both have in the story, um, that God, that sin was paid for by Christ on the cross, that there was justice done. And that there are individuals who have committed gravest sin, and they have not been reconciled to God through their repentance and receiving forgiveness in Christ, and being reconciled to there will be a judgment against them, right? They will be judged for their sins, for that sin and many others. So it will be held accountable. Either it will be held accountable on through Christ's death that he died, or it will be accountable, accountable made accountable in the end in the judgment. Uh, so it, when we think about the history of forgiveness, the history of forgiveness starts with Christ. Uh, the ancient world had no concept of forgiveness. Um, if you were rich and aristocrat, you were therefore, you know, you had moral excellence in some ways. And um, 
and really were able to do whatever you wanted to, to women or children or slaves, anyone below you. And you really didn't have to ask forgiveness because you weren't accountable to those people. They were not equals with you. That was, that was the ancient world. Um, forgiveness was just not a concept. Um, now, the Jews understood that there was forgiveness between God and man through the sacrificial system. Um, but becoming a concept that the Gentiles, the non-Jews followed, came through um, the gospel, through Christianity. When we even to have a discussion on forgiveness from a secular standpoint is a byproduct of the impact that Christianity has had in the world, especially in the Western world. Um, the foundations and pillars of the Western world is, is rooted in Christ and the gospel. Um, it is very much a, um, an inf- influential worldview that continues to impact even atheists and those who reject Christianity or actually will ask for forgiveness. And that's because they've been impacted by the Christian worldview. If we lived in the ancient world before Christ, there would be no discussions about forgiveness and the rich and the powerful uh, will never, would never be held accountable for their actions and men would never be held accountable to their sins against women, and masters would never be held accountable to their slaves, um, and therefore, and therefore, and therefore. Um, and that's, you know, that's a helpful understanding as we talk to people, if, you know, apologetically, that the, our concept and understanding of forgiveness comes through the gospel. Um, without the gospel, there is no understanding of forgiveness. There is no concept of forgiveness and um, and um, we are all kind of um, at the mercy of our of our class of society, really. Um, so that was a really interesting chapter of Keller's book. And there's you know he he talks kind of in the later part of the book about how forgiveness looks like on a practical uh, practical level. Um, and he goes through a lot of different passages of Scripture, Old and New Testament, on the concept of forgiveness and how to um, not only to give forgiveness, um, not only to receive forgiveness, is usually how we think about, um, you know, actually, I guess it's the other way around. We tend to think about giving forgiveness, but also receiving forgiveness and um and understanding uh, the importance of our, our need to be forgiven, that we are, um, and it really all goes back to that, that parable of the unforgiving uh, servant, um, to our understanding of what forgiveness is, how to, how to give it, how to receive it, um, that to understand forgiveness and to actually how to receive it is that there's a reconciliation. So we're, even when we need to be forgiven, I think this is probably a, a good place to, to maybe to end this, is when we think about even receiving forgiveness, um, we don't need to qu- so quick to brush it under the, under the rug. Um, that is not loving to the person that you've wronged. Um, we don't want to quickly... Um, just push the, the, the victim to say, oh, you know, just, you know, forgive me and let's just move on and brush under the rug, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and not acknowledge the wrong you've done. Again, going back to those steps, you have to show pity for your 
wrong for your debt to the person. You have to show repentance. You have to show pity that you've committed a wrong. And David talks about this in Psalm 51. Ultimately, we sin against God. So it has to start with repentance towards God before we can even ask repentance from the one that we've wronged. Um, and then, yes, I mean, the person has to show compassion on you to be forgiven. If their heart is not compassionate towards you, you can't push for forgiveness. But you have to continue to ask for repentance. Continue to repent. Continue to ask um, ask for their forgiveness. And um, and when we think about, um, you know, if they when they do show compassion for you, when that is happening, and and they do express forgiveness towards you. Um, then it's important to reconcile, right? To, um, to, to try to get better at the thing that you've done. If it's a communication issue in your marriage, um, not just to brush it under the rug, but to actually work at communicating. To try not to do those things again. If that harms and hurts your partner, um, how can I not do that? How, how can I show uh, patience? How can I show? Um, gentleness. These are all fruits of the Spirit. And so that's one of the things we want to work on as we reconcile, as we move past the wrongdoing and and, and, our, and both and the victim is healed um, and there's a, a peace that has then been brokered and there's a peace that's been accomplished and and the the part in the in the, the parties in this situation can can be friends again. They can be um, you know, a healthy partnership again. Um, that is the goal um, of, of forgiveness, so that there be a releasing to a future with that issue and that wrongdoing not being held above that relationship. Um, so this is, um, this is a great uh, book uh, about uh, forgiveness called Forgive by Tim Keller. Um, take out some more of Tim Keller's books out there if you if you're interested in some of the things he's written about, um, and um, can't say more about his ministry and the impact it's had on my life, and and hopefully it will have an impact on you as well. Um, and so look forward to maybe talking about some more uh, news or news articles or political issues next week. Um, as we get into the month of June, and hope you have a wonderful weekend coming up. And uh, this has been a pastor's newspaper. I hope that you continue to read the news with the Bible in your hand. See you next time.